Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Mind Seminar Series. The series was produced by the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies as part of Teherenga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington's 125th anniversary celebrations. Rebellious Minds explores episodes of dissent, nonconformity, critical thinking and eccentricity from across the university's history, aspiring to highlight stories of rebellion in political, social, and cultural life. My name is Dr. Saman Hasibi, and the rebellious mind I'm speaking with today is Dr. Samantha Keen, who is a lecturer in criminology in the School of Social and Cultural Studies here at Teherenga Waka. Kia Sam, thank you for accepting my invitation and welcome to the Rebellious Mind podcast. Uh, Kia ora, and thank you so much for having me along for what sounds like an incredibly uh, insightful series that I think is documenting uh, the sorts of rebellion and the sorts of activism that I love to see in the academy. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, So I'm just going to jump right in, if it's okay with you, and ask my first question. So I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us a bit about your research and the courses you teach at Teherenga Waka. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Dr. Samantha Keen, and I am a lecturer, Pukenga in criminology uh, in the Institute of Criminology at the School of Social and Cultural Studies. Uh, my doctoral research examined uh, the contemporary gendered influence of uh, primarily heterosexual mainstream pornography uh, on the lives of uh, a sample of um, a, a small sample, if you like, uh, of emerging adults in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So that's people between the ages of 18 and 30. So a group that has grown up with a blended mix, if you like, uh, of access to pornographic materials available in, in print and video, uh, and now primarily on the internet. Uh, through those conversations that I had during my doctoral research, I came to have a, a real interest in understanding uh, the contemporary phenomenon of rough sex uh, and the use of the rough, the so-called rough sex defense uh, in courtrooms across Aotearoa and around the globe, uh, perhaps most famously used here or infamously, if you like, uh, in relation to the tragic death of Grace Mullane. So those are sort of the areas that I'm interested in doing research in at the moment. So around pornography, understanding what we mean by the term rough sex, but also understanding how pornography can shape our ideas about what good sex is, what bad sex is, and how sex is performed um, in our intimate relationships. And that sort of dovetails nicely into the teaching that I'm involved in. Uh, So since I joined Uh, the Institute of Criminology as a lecturer in 2020. I have taught um, a paper on sexual violence. Uh, So that's a a third year course um, with students who have a real interest in examining that topic in detail. Uh, I'm the coordinator of 
a paper uh, which explores women's experiences of social control and criminality. So looking at women's experiences as victims, as offenders, and as criminal justice system practitioners, uh, with a core focus on uh, the Aotearoa New Zealand context. And I am also the co-coordinator of our large introductory criminology course, um, which this year has 600 students enrolled, uh, which certainly keeps me very busy. Uh, but the purpose of that course is to introduce our students to the theoretical uh, underpinnings of criminological thought and exploring the ways in which social variables such as gender intersect with crime and how that affects how we perceive and understand crime and criminality in our society. So it sounds like a very busy workload, I think, when I put it all out there. <laughs> <laughs> so for the listeners, the few of your lectures on contemporary pornography and its changing nature are available on Vstream and also YouTube if they want to uh, catch them. Yes, absolutely. So there is a seminar um, available on YouTube, uh, which explores contemporary pornography and what our understandings of rough sex are and how they may be informed by that. And that was delivered to Tuanest, uh, which is the National Collective of Sexual Violence um, Sector Organisations. Uh, and that, that was a really useful corridor that we had um, and certainly seems to have had quite a bit of interest uh, on YouTube. And then there are a, a series of lectures available from a symposium that was held at Teheringa Waka in 2019, I believe, um, following the completion of Emerita Professors Jan Jordan's Marsden Project, looking at rape, silencing and objectification. And that's where we, we discuss the changing nature of contemporary pornography from 1975 through to 2015. So all available and, and free to access there. Oh, wow. I'm sure our listeners would be appreciating them. Uh, so my question is actually um, sort of links to this. Um, your research uh, on the changing nature of pornography was a very anti-paradigm work. Um, you call it the dirty work. Um, although academic work isn't generally considered dirty, yet because of the stigma attached to the concept of sex and sexuality and porn, it can be considered dirty work as discussed by the American sociologist Janice Irvine. Irvine mentions how this stigma and the cultural anxieties around sex and sexuality can produce cognitive and emotional bias, which has affected the way academia treats sex and sexuality as a topic and sex and sexuality researchers, which basically means that this dirty work and the dirty workers, so to speak, are generally acknowledged, but also sort of dismissed and marginalized. So my main question for you is that how has academia treated you and what were some of the challenges you faced here at Teherengawaka? Yeah, so um, I published an article uh, in 2021 called uh, Becoming a, a Sexademic. And so my reflections on becoming uh, now an, an academic in a, a, a permanent lecturer position, uh, but previously um, a precarious academic uh, doing research on sex and pornography in particular, and how that in many ways, as, as you so beautifully described, 
Janice Irvine suggests that people doing research on stigmatized practices or stigmatized issues can become tainted, if you like, by the subject itself. And not only that, but I think that sex research more broadly, uh, and particularly research on pornography, has a history of academic marginalization. So in many ways, people involved in doing research about pornography uh, have been considered to be, there must be something about them, if you like, as to why they would choose a subject like that. And it's also been seen to be not a, not a legitimate area of academic inquiry. So the fact that, that sex is, is something so common and something that the majority of people will experience in their lifetime, but at the same time, it still remains quite stigmatized and silenced in terms of the conversations that we have about that. It can make it really hard to try and break into the ivory tower, if you like, and to talk about a subject that in many ways is taboo, uh, but at the same time is, is titillating and exciting and simultaneously trivialized. Uh, so coming through uh, as a doctoral student, um, I began my PhD when I was the tender age of 25, I think. I may have just turned 26. Um, and I had grown up in a, a world and a culture that was saturated with sex. So conversations about sex for me were not uncommon. Uh, and there was certainly something that I noticed were happening more freely uh, along alongside my peers and people of a similar age group. And so I was really surprised at some of the challenges I faced whilst uh, conducting my PhD research. Um, there were a range of challenges that were faced at the uh, ethical review stage, and that is well documented internationally for other sex and sexuality researchers. This idea that sex research at the ethics committee stage, because sex research is sensitive, but also stigmatized, it's thus subject to higher levels of scrutiny. And one thing that I found particularly telling uh, in the process of applying for ethical approval, and this is not to say that this is a, a to hitting a walker problem, I think we're speaking about ethics review processes in relation to sex and sexuality research at an international level, uh, gender became a core focus. So a recommendation um, was made that I should have somebody in the room with me when I do the interviews for my safety. And I guess uh, I was doing my PhD alongside a, a friend who was doing a PhD at the University of Auckland at the time, who was male and didn't have any issues whatsoever in getting ethical approval to have conversations with men about sex. But because I was deciding to interview both men and women about their experiences of sex and with pornography, I felt that the my identity as a young female meant that there was somehow some sort of paternalistic protection afforded um, around trying to reduce the risk associated with doing that sort of work. Now, of course, that makes a lot of assumptions about the type of people that I would interview. Um, that assumes that somehow people who may watch porn perhaps would be considered dangerous, uh, which is, of course, you know, counter to the idea that we know that 
very large numbers of the population engage with pornography on a very regular basis. But beyond uh, the, the ethics review challenges, if you like, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, for me as a, a dirty worker, if you like, was the social impact. So it, it was like, and, and to this day remains that, very often my identity as a pornography researcher felt like it was glued to my forehead wherever I went. It was as if going to, if I was going out to a bar and having a drink with friends, you would meet a new person and your friends would be, oh, this is Sam and she researches porn. And the conversation used to just shift drastically in that moment. And you could feel the, the climate or the atmosphere change. And it felt like I was simultaneously a pornography researcher, a precarious academic, uh, and as well as that, everyone's sex therapist, which felt like I could never leave my job behind, if you like. I couldn't leave my identity as a PhD student behind and just be me. So I started to uh, introduce myself differently. Uh, I would say that I was uh, Dr. Samantha Keen, or not doctor at the time, I would now, um, but I would say that I worked at the IRD, which for me was perhaps the most boring job in the world. And I guess for me, that provided a, a form of protection, if you like, and it allowed me to take some agency around where I wanted to disclose about what my job was and to whom, because what I started to recognize that was that there were a lot of places where that actually wasn't a safe conversation for me to be part of. And so people make a lot of assumptions about who you must be if you research sex or if you research pornography. Um, I vividly remember being considered a threat to someone's relationship uh, because I was open in discussions about sex and pornography but also it just felt like I was constantly, constantly situated as the porn queen. And it shaped my identity in so many ways and just encouraged me, I guess, to find ways to, to manage that. Um, whilst at the same time recognizing that the pursuit of understanding about pornography was so critically important to society that those challenges were a necessary evil if you like, um, which doesn't sound too heartening when I when I reflect on that either. Um, but I certainly don't see those experiences um, as, you know, I'm not the only person that's had those experiences doing that work. Um, so I think it is a, a unique challenge for sex and sexuality research. But that's part of the process, right? Part of what we do as sex and sexuality researchers is we challenge those stigmatized assumptions about sex and we challenge those silences around sex. So I guess that inevitably comes with those personal challenges for us as well. Um, you also teach about sexual violence among other topics um, here at Teherengawaka. So you'd be talking about sensitive topics to students which can affect students differently depending on each person's personal experience. Uh, some may have lived experiences of trauma. Um, so I appreciate that it's not easy regardless of the setting um, in the face-to-face -face lectures or online. 
So I'm wondering about the challenges you as an educator face. Uh, I also am wondering about the challenges the students face, but I appreciate you may not be able to share them with us. But my general question is how was the learning process for you and for your students, if, it, if it's okay uh, to ask? And what have you learned from each other in this process and what challenges did you overcome together? Absolutely. Uh, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I joined Teheding Awaka uh, in a lecturer role uh, in 2020. Um, so becoming a new academic brings with it a, a whole raft of changes, uh, new processes to learn, entirely new ways of doing things. Uh, and that coincided as well uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, at the beginning of 2020, I was teaching CRIM 324, our sexual violence course, and I managed to give, I think, two lectures in person before we pivoted to uh, online delivery due to the nationwide level four lockdown. Now, I absolutely appreciate that for all of us involved in academic teaching, the transition to online learning presented a huge challenge. Uh, a huge challenge for us on a personal level in relation to workloads, in relation to building engagement with our students. But for teachers of sensitive subjects, uh, so for myself and um, my colleague at the time, Emerita Professor Jan Jordan, as we were teaching or contemplating the transition from face-to-face -face teaching for that course to the online environment, we encountered a range of pedagogical challenges particularly in relation to how could we ensure the emotional safety of our student cohort while they were studying under lockdown conditions. Now, of course, we know uh, that as researchers ourselves, uh, we have experienced vicarious trauma through the research that we've been involved in in relation to sexual violence. But as a teacher, of sensitive topics, we have to be acutely aware of the potential for the content that we deliver to be distressing. Uh, and as you uh, recognized, many of our students will have lived experience of victimization, uh, whether that be directly or indirectly. So we have to foresee that the, the content that we're delivering can, in many ways, be triggering. Uh, can be challenging for students to confront. So the most important thing for us is to think about the safeguards that we can put in place to ensure that students can navigate the content we deliver safely. We have a long history of teaching the sexual violence course at Te Heringawaka, uh, and that's been built on the incredible expertise of Jan Jordan and of Dr. Lindsay Armstrong, uh, who have previously or are currently teaching those papers. Uh, but teaching it online, very different. Uh, we don't have that same space as we do in the face-to-face -face environment to develop the same sort of rapport that we can um, manage in that context. We also don't have the opportunity to check in with our students and read the room as we deliver content. So one thing for us, we are constantly looking at how our content is landing, looking and checking students' facial expressions to see if there are things that are challenging. And also in the face-to-face -face environment, we have an opportunity to identify teachable moments. So we can identify space where further conversation might be needed. We can identify space where we need to think about, you know, okay, do we need to delve into this deeply or do we need to move on 
from the topic that we're currently covering. In the online environment, that's not so easy. So what we did was we completely remodeled the course uh, for online delivery. We broke our course down into modules. Uh, we reduced the amount of course content. Uh, so we started delivering recorded videos of seven to 10 minutes in length instead of just two hour streamed lectures. Uh, we introduced our, our students to our pets uh, and we brought them into our homes virtually in an attempt to, to build rapport with them. Uh, and we constantly recognized that our students, the, the possibility that our students may experience violence was heightened. So we know that internationally, in times of crisis, such as pandemics, or such as wildfires, for example, or natural disasters, we know that violence often increases in the wake of that. So we were acutely aware that the potential for our students to be having lived experience of violence at the time uh, of the lockdown was high. Uh, we did receive disclosures from students about their experiences while they were living in their homes during the lockdown. And so we made ourselves available to them as a, a connection point to support services. We built in as much information into our course as we could about what supports were available. We made video updates uh, where we would tell our students about how we were feeling and how we were navigating what was going on, sharing the wisdom that we had about how we navigate challenging content safely, um, discouraged our students from doing their readings at night, if you like. Um, and we, we did what we could to get the course through. Uh, and what we found at the end was that students really valued the changes that we made to the course uh, and our, our feedback from the course was, was very well received. But most of that, most of what we were doing in that course was pastoral care. So that was being available almost around the clock for our students in a way that steps, steps beyond, I think, what could be expected uh, of an academic job. Uh, but through a commitment to feminist social activism uh, and through trauma-informed teaching, it was something that was crucially important for us as, as we taught that paper. And that provided us with a, a really good opportunity to think about, okay, let's share some of these strategies. And so Jan Jordan and I published uh, an open access article in the Women's Studies Journal about our reflections on teaching about sexual violence in an online environment. And those strategies have been shared widely across the world. Uh, and we've received really, um, really great feedback about the article uh, where others have been able to implement similar strategies in their development of teaching sensitive content online. So we certainly see that as a real success. But by the same token, if we were to, I think, make the same decision now, <laughs> Um, we would obviously be much more informed about whether we would teach a course like that online. Uh, but pivoting to do that is a real challenge, uh, but was something that that we were, because of the experience that we had on the team, uh, we were, in, you know, very able to do that. Well, it was an excellent article. I have read it and it was so timely uh, because of the pandemic and the lockdown. So I'm I, it's, it doesn't surprise me that others have found it very useful. 
Um, you just highlighted the importance of the ethics of care. And you talked about the duty of care to your students, which is undeniably important, especially when it comes to teaching such sensitive courses. What I'm wondering about is the university's ethics of care for the staff that minimizes the staff distress and recognizes their work. This is because providing pastoral care, though essential, remains invisible for the most part, especially when we consider that the system generally values publication more than teaching and pastoral care. Uh, but when you spend so much time and energy on pastoral care, your research uh, and your well-being may suffer. So my question is that what do you expect from the university and what should be included in their ethics of care for the staff? It's a, it's a really great question. And I think it is important to highlight that the pastoral care work, uh, whilst essential uh, and will always be done, uh, the pastoral care work involved in teaching sensitive topics online may is likely to be increased for those sorts of courses versus um, some versus a course that may not have that. It may not necessarily be that the pastoral care loads are are, are so different, but they're unique in the sense that handling disclosures of sexual victimization, for example, may be more likely um, to occur in a course like a sexual violence course than they would be to occur in, in something else such as science. Of course, they they rely, those sorts of disclosures rely on, um, you know, a trusted relationship with someone. Uh, so that can certainly happen. Um, but the pastoral care load um, in many ways, and, and this has been written about in, in higher education journals, is often seen as invisible. Um, but it is a, a, a large chunk of the work that I do and certainly the work of my colleagues. And so what I have uh, seen recently that's happened at Te Hiringawaka, which I think is a, a, a fantastic addition, uh, is the introduction of clinical supervision for uh, people handling uh, student disclosures, for example. So people uh, encountering difficulties or challenges uh, in their teaching or in the work that they do in the university environment we now have access to uh, accessing that support, which is great. But I think it raises a question on a broader level, uh, particularly given that some of the research in, in higher education suggests that pastoral care work is uh, inequitably um, balanced in the sense that female academics are more likely to, to wear the load, if you like, um, of pastoral care responsibilities. And that can absolutely have implications on, on research, which in a research-led environment um, can make things challenging. But I think it, it's really important that pastoral care work is factored into workloads. I think that's crucial. Uh, and I think it, it deserves to be recognized in the same way that we recognize the quality of the teaching that we deliver, because pastoral care is intrinsic to the quality of the teaching that we give. And if academic staff are stretched really, really thin, uh, our ability to do our job successfully across all pillars of our academic career, that can make that really hard. And so I think to reduce the possibility of staff burnout, I think it would be great to see pastoral care being factored in into workload modelling. Yes, definitely. I totally agree with you. Um, 
But I'm just going to move on to my next question, which is about another aspect of your rebellious mind and work, uh, which perhaps has been less talked about, uh, which is your research on fat. Fat is very often talked about from a medical or scientific perspective and less often is discussed in the social and cultural discourses. You have worked with the late Dr. Kat Pause, who was a rebellious mind herself, and other researchers on the article, Teeth are for Chewing. That is a critical review of the conceptualization and ethics of a controversial weight loss device. You reclaim the word fat, address a range of issues such as racism, stigmatization of fat bodies, effects on people with eating disorders, and so on. I wonder, how did you start working together on this piece? And what were the challenges you faced? And why more people are not talking about this? Absolutely. And, and I'd just like to take the opportunity um, to, to think about Kat um, and to recognize her absolutely rebellious mind uh, and the incredible work that she can uh, she achieved uh, for fat liberation. Uh, so I met Kat uh, a number of years ago uh, and we had presented at um, a panel around body positivity and, and fat liberation. Uh, which was organized by the Women's Studies Group on campus at Te Heringa Waka. Uh, and we'd also become friends via social media. Uh, and I had previously written a chapter in a book, which was a reflexive piece about my experiences of being a fat, sexually active woman uh, and what that meant uh, for me. And Kat was also in that book. And through our online interactions, primarily via Twitter, um, we saw a, a piece come out from the University of Otago, which was uh, a communications piece advertising um, a controversial weight loss device called the Dental Slim, which essentially, um, to put it crudely, was a, a wiring device to wire people's mouths shut uh, to enhance the likelihood that they're dieting. Uh, would be successful. And so this came out and caused quite um, quite a stir online. Uh, and many of us on Twitter were outraged at what we were seeing. Um, the, you know, fat people and fat bodies have been surveilled, policed and controlled in so many ways. Um, and this felt like a hark back to literally wiring people's jaws shut, <laughs> which... Uh, is has historically been a way of managing uh, fatness. Now, of course, being fat is not a bad word. It's not a dirty word either. Uh, but we felt that we felt compelled to write something in response to this. And so um, led by Kat and uh, facilitated by uh, the wonderful Dr. Tara McAllister, uh, who coordinated and corralled a range of Twitter, Twitter bodies together, um, we collectively wrote a response to um, the publication of the article in the British Dental Journal about the Dental Slim. We raised a, a number of serious questions about the ethical review process in relation to uh, the device, but also the, the social implications 
of what this would mean uh, and how this perceives fat bodies as unruly, uh, as, as deviant, um, and as something necessary of control. And so we, we wrote a response and we had originally sent that to the New Zealand Medical Journal, given that uh, this was a, a New Zealand-based study. Um, we didn't have a lot of success at the New Zealand Medical Journal for publication. Uh, so after many Zoom sessions where we collectively wrote together um, over a reasonably short period, actually, to put that all together, um, we sent that through to the British Dental Journal. Uh, and that was published. And for us, that felt like a, a, a really important step in recognizing that fat bodies do not exist to be controlled, uh, that fat bodies are normal, uh, that there isn't anything wrong with fatness. And actually, the issues with fat or with fatness come from the societal responses to fat that are largely shaped by the media, they're shaped by uh, the medical community, they're shaped ultimately by stigma and by negative associations. And so that felt like a real, a real sense of, of justice for us all. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge all the co-authors on, on that article for that, um, because I felt like in many ways, standing still and not responding to the idea that we can wire people's jaws shut to make them more successful at losing weight suggests that those bodies are not deserving of agency. And for us, writing that response was really important. Yes, um, it's, it's so very important, especially in this world that we live in, especially in the West, that we are so preoccupied with thinness and so irrationally fear fat um, as an ingredient, as a body body type as anything that is associated with fat there's this irrational fear um, I personally have worked on fear of fat in the context of food communications in mass media but you have talked about body and identity within the context of academia in occupying a fat research identity reflections from the field I was wondering if you could share some of your reflections with us yeah, I can. I um, So I'm not a fat studies researcher myself, but I certainly see many intersections um, between the, the way that fatness is perceived in society and the way that we perceive uh, particular things within criminology, for example. And I certainly think that there is scope for fat studies and criminology to, to link together um, in interdisciplinary ways in the future. And I re would really welcome the opportunity um, to, to hear about that, um, but also to think about maybe that might be something I, I would like to pursue in the future as well. But earlier on in the podcast, I talked about occupying this dirty work identity and being a, a dirty worker because I was a porn scholar. Um, and I'm, I also identify as a fat woman. And what I noticed a lot during my PhD through the, the negative societal responses I was receiving about the nature of my work and about being a porn scholar, that actually intersected in many ways with me being a fat woman as well. So, for example, when negative responses to my work were being received, they were often at the same time linked in with 
my body as, as a fat individual as well. Now, we know that fat women and sexuality, um, in many ways, research that's been done internationally suggests that they're often perceived as either hypersexual and this idea that they, they are always available for sex and, and always rearing to go, or that fat women are not sexual at all and are not considered sexual. And I think at different times during my PhD journey, I was labeled with both of those things. So in some ways, I was seen as, as hypersexual. So this fat porn scholar, um, people would ask when they found out that I studied porn, oh, well, where are your videos? Assuming that I participated um, in pornography myself or performed in pornography. And that would often be added with, oh, I bet you're in a, a fetish space because fat bodies are often considered to be a niche category uh, of pornography or outside of the confines of typical mainstream pornography, if we can consider pornography to have a mainstream. But at the same time, I think as well, during some of the interviews for my PhD, for example, my identity as a fat sexual woman almost meant that I could participate in that conversation in a way that I was being perceived as not sexual. So it was safe to talk to me about those things. Uh, but also during the interviews as well, the same thing happened in the sense that I noticed that my fat body was being recognized uh, by some of the participants that I was speaking with. Uh, so for example, one participant said uh, that they appreciated women of all sizes in pornography and then sized my body up and ensured that they added including BBW, which stands for Big Beautiful Women. So it felt like in many ways it was impossible to withdraw myself from the dirty work identity, but at the same time that intersected with my fat body. And so my body was very much an embodied part of the PhD process. And so it's something I'm still working through now and, and working through the feelings about that. Um, but certainly something that I think I see a lot of potential for uh, in terms of, for example, looking at women's ex fat women's experiences of sexual victimization. You know, do those differ? How can we understand those experiences? So I see a, a, a real potential for merging um, or a crossover between fat studies and criminology in the future. And, and that makes me excited. Um, so we are getting close to the end of this interview. I have only two more questions for you, Sam. Uh, one is, what's your advice for the other or future rebels who share the same interests with you? Firstly, I, I love uh, that this is called Rebellious Minds. And when I was first invited to take part in this podcast, I wondered what was rebellious about me at all. Um, and as I talked to my colleagues, uh, I was reminded of just how rebellious doing research on sex can be, um, but also being outspoken about sex, about gender, about bodies, about how rebellious that can be as well. And so I guess my, my main piece of advice for anyone wanting to embark on on research that might be dirty or it might be sensitive or it might be challenging, it might go against the grain of what the, the status quo is. Um, my advice after 
my three years of, of doctoral research and now three years in the academy is to question everything, never take anything for granted. And I guess for me, when the challenges arise, as, as they inevitably do, uh, to not give up. So I think I, 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 you know, I don't like the word resilience um, in a lot of ways because I think it's often applied as this term that we must all, you know, strive for. We must be resilient, um, you know, beings that can can suffer through anything. And I and I don't think that we need to suffer as such because I think that the supports around us should always be there. Um, for me doing my doctoral research, the, the support from my supervision team was was immense and would have been impossible without them. Uh, so thank you to Dr. Carol Harrington and, and uh, Emerita Professor Jan Jordan. But they, they encouraged me to question everything as well. And so I think without questioning minds, we're not going to have the rebellious research uh, that I think can provide a real benefit to society and and unlock us some access to some of the things that may historically not have made it into the academic sphere and to be excited about that but to also be aware of of the pitfalls um, but to have a good support team around you as you navigate those challenges so true um so for as for my last question for you um, what are you currently working on and what will you be working on in the future? Absolutely. So at the moment, um, so I gave my final lectures for my introductory criminology course yesterday. Uh, so I'm having a much needed breather today. <laughs> um, and once the, the final examinations and, and, and tests are completed for that, uh, I'm looking forward to finding some space to dedicate to writing my book. So my PhD thesis is going to be written as a monograph for Rutledge, um, which looks at uh, rough sex, it looks at pornography, uh, and essentially it provides a gendered lens on the, the changing way that pornography can affect our, our sexual scripts, if you like, or our understandings about sex, um, as well as our understandings about relationships, about intimacy, and about the body. Uh, so COVID-19 has, has presented a whole range of challenges for us in the research sphere, um, but I'm really looking forward to, to getting into some decent writing on that over the summer. Uh, as well as that, I have a, a book chapter coming out shortly uh, in a book called Shades of Deviance, and it's a very short entry, but it's a, a short, snappy discussion about pornography and sexual scripts. Um, and so I'm looking for, I, I like to try and write as accessibly as possible. Uh, and I think writing short, snappy pieces is a great way to do that, um, as well as uh, opinion pieces in the media, which I'm hoping to find some time for over the summer as well. And I'm going to be presenting at the National Sexual Violence HUI um, on the 14th and 15th of November, where I'm going to be uh, presenting findings from an analysis of definitions about rough sex, um, which I'm really excited to share with uh, from a sexual violence prevention point of view. And then thinking ahead, I think I, I might deserve a, a real break after the book is finished. 
Uh, and I'm not sure what comes next in terms of the type of research that I might be interested in. Uh, there are so many areas that it's almost hard for me to narrow them down. But I am really interested still in critically interrogating how we understand what rough sex is, uh, what the implications of the change to the law in relation to strangulation in Aotearoa might mean. So how have victims' experiences in the court system, now that that has changed, uh, now that the law has changed, what, how has that affected victims' uh, access to justice or lack of? Uh, and also really interested to see um, how we might start thinking about coercive control in Aotearoa. So internationally, there have been moves made to criminalise coercive control. And I'm really interested to think about what that might look like um, in Aotearoa. And just recognising that the feminist job will never be done. Uh, and there will always be more research uh, that needs to be done in my space and in, in my field. And uh, I'm excited to see and be part of postgraduate students doing work in that space as well and, and to be part of the supervision process for that too. So, yeah, I guess that's me going forward. Um, and I'm sure you'll see me round. Uh, I was recently on a, a documentary uh, on TV One. It's available, I think, on uh, TVNZ On Demand. And it was called Swipe With Caution. Uh, and I'm on a documentary on uh, Prime TV on Thursday, the is it the 13th of October? Uh, well, this Thursday uh, from when we're filming this, which is Tuesday the 11th, um, which is called A Question of Justice. And so a documentary about um, victims' rights and the justice process in Aotearoa. So I'm going to continue uh, being critical, continue being rebellious, and uh, I'm excited to see what comes next. We are very excited also. Um, thank you so much, Sam, for giving us your time and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us so generously. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in and hope you all stay safe and well. This is Dr. Saman Hasibi, and this podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Mind Seminar Series. You can catch our other podcasts at Victoria University SoundCloud. You can also find the links to our podcasts and the videos for the seminar series through the Stout Research Center for New Zealand Studies webpage.